Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you so much for the kind introduction, Dennis, and the invite to be here today. Um, I'm particularly thrilled to be here from our community house on Wurundjeri land. Uh, it is the first time I have presented outside of my home in more than six months, so it's um, pretty exciting to be out and about again. Um, as Dennis said, I'm going to talk today about inequality. It's one of those issues uh, that does come up a lot. We see in opinion poll data that Australians care a lot about. We hear it talked about in politics. But there's actually a lot of um, debate. There's a lot of different ways of cutting the data that tells different stories. Uh, so what I was really hoping to do today is to, to put some numbers on the table that I think are the best representation of both the snapshot of inequality in Australia in terms of wealth and income. I want to talk a bit about how that's changed over time. And then I want to talk about some different dimensions of inequality, intergenerational inequality, how different generations fare, regional inequality. Uh, I could have added gender inequality to the list, but I only have half an hour, but very happy to take questions to it. Uh, and then I want to build up to why we should care. What are the issues with inequality that really matter? Poverty and entrenched disadvantage. Entrenched advantage, where um, the wealth, wealthy can set the rules of the game in order to continue to increase their wealth and power and the impact on political harmony and the rise of populism, uh, which all of us have been thinking uh, perhaps a lot about over the last few weeks with the US election. Um, finally, I want to come to the point of what governments can do. And there, I think, you know, there, there really is a good story to tell. In a lot of ways, governments have tools at their disposals that can make a difference to these questions of inequality. Um, so let's start with the big picture and what's happening. What do Australians earn? It's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. Um, this is one way of looking at it, which is um, disposable income, so essentially how much people earn after taxes and transfers. Some of you might be surprised by this distribution. Uh, we have a lot of survey data that suggests most Australians, more than 80%, think that they are in the middle of the income distribution. <laughs> of course, that cannot be true, but it means that you know, the way we think about incomes is often very much through the prism of our own incomes and those of our peers. What we know is about 50% of Australians earn less than $50,000 a year on this measure. The other 50% are above, but you have a very long tail and quite a wide distribution at the top. What's been happening over time? Certainly we've seen big absolute increases at the top of the distribution. In percentage terms, it's less stark. We've seen incomes go a little bit more at the top, but overall it's been reasonably consistent across the distribution. One way we can look at inequality um, in a single measure is the Gini coefficient. You may have heard economists talking about this. Uh, it sits somewhere between zero and one. Zero being the most equal, everyone has the same amount. One being the most unequal you can imagine. One person has everything, no one else has anything. Uh, in Australia, we, we sit around middle of the pack of Western country standards in terms of our in income inequality. Depending on what data set you use, you get different answers of what's been happening over time. The one we think is most reliable, the ABS survey of income and housing, suggests income inequality has got a bit worse over the past 15 years. Uh, other people that like to say it hasn't got worse are referring to the other data set there, the HILDA data set. One thing that does seem to jump out um, in all the studies across Western countries is what's been happening to the top 1%. 
the highest income earners. It's really hard to measure. They're a small group, so it's hard to get a good sample. They tend to have more complicated structures that they're using to funnel their incomes through. But most um, academics that have looked at this have concluded that that top 1% is increasing their share of income over time in a number of Western countries. Let's talk about wealth now. Uh, it is more pronounced than income inequality in absolute terms. It's actually so pronounced it's really hard for people, I think, to conceptualise just how stark some of the differences are. That's why I really love this um, analogy by Andrew Lee from his 2013 book, Battlers and Billionaires. So he says, imagine um, Australian wealth is on a ladder. 50% of Australians are going to be about halfway to the bottom rung, uh, so just halfway up that first step. The top 10% are about one and a half rungs up. The top 1% are about five rungs up. Gina Reinhart is 10 kilometres off the ground. Um, so just to give you a sense of just how stark those differentials are. Uh, and Gina has got some views of why it is that some may be performing <laughs> less well than her in terms of her Welsh. Um, of course, um, there is a lot more going on than the particular behaviours of people that, that may sit somewhere below the 10K mark. Wealth inequality has been getting worse and certainly we see that over the past 15, 10, 15 years, the wealth at the top, particularly that, that sort of top 40, 50%, has been growing faster than for the bottom 50%. Uh, a lot of that is going to come down to house prices, and I want to talk about the role that housing plays a little bit later when I talk about intergenerational inequality, but that explains a lot of what's going on there. Um, and unsurprisingly, the genie in terms of wealth is higher than income. As I said, it's more unequal, and we see it, particularly according to the ABS, increasing over time. So that's the, the kind of the big picture on wealth and income inequality. And as I said, I'm going to come back to why we should care, but I want to come at the question of inequality through a different lens now, and that's around intergenerational inequality. And I come to that because it's something that really has opened up over the past 15 years. We're seeing much bigger um, gaps in terms of wealth and income accumulation by age than we have in the past. So this is the picture for wealth. Um, what you can see is that wealth has been accumulating relatively fast, particularly for households over 65. Um, let's remember these are averages and of course it hides a whole lot of things going on and we know that there are a lot of older households that are not well off at all. But on average, household wealth has increased quite strongly for older Australians, probably about half a million dollars on average um, since the year 2000. In contrast, if we look at younger households, particularly those under 35, wealth has barely shifted. So if I took an average younger household today, um, they would have almost no more wealth than a household of that same age did back in the year 2000. Um, that's a pretty stark finding. So what's going on? Um, it does, there are, there are a number of things going on, I should say, but house prices are probably the single most important. Sometime in the late 1990s, you can see that prices started to diverge pretty seriously from income. If you owned a house before the boom, uh, you've generally done pretty well. You may have had quite a large windfall gain in some cases. On the other hand, younger Australians are really struggling to get onto that property ladder. Uh, and even the ones that do are taking on significantly more debt than they did in prior generations. Also really important to this story is actually what's happening within age groups. So if we go back to the early 1980s and we look at that 25 to 34 year old age group, what you see is home ownership rates of about 60%, regardless of where you were in the income distribution. 
Um, so it didn't tell me much about your likelihood of owning a home, knowing um, you know, whether you're well off or not so well off as a young person in that generation. That has dramatically shifted. If we look at the 2016 data, home ownership amongst high income young people, actually not that different to, to where it was back in 1981. But home ownership amongst low income young people has fallen like a stone. Home ownership rates have dropped from over 60% to just over 20% for people in the bottom group of earners amongst young people. So that's a very significant shift. Uh, we can no longer assume that people are going to come out of that age range likely to own a home. Um, it's actually only going to be the well-off that, that enter that, their middle age owning a home. That has implications for how we think about social welfare um, in age, how we, sit, how we think about a whole lot of ways in which we structure our society in which the, the underlying assumption has been that most people would own their own home in the past. Is it because young people are buying avocado on toast? Uh, the answer, sorry Bernard Salt, is a firm no. Yes, young people are spending more. They're spending it on essentials, housing, power, food. Uh, Non-essential spending has actually declined uh, for a lot of age groups, uh, but particularly amongst the young. Um, so less spending on alcohol, tobacco, less spending on clothing, less spending on household furnishings. Um, there is no obvious um, answer that the young people are kind of frittering away their money. We're also seeing quite a concerning story in terms of income. Income growth across the board has been really subdued for the past decade and you would have heard a lot of people talking about low wages growth and that's absolutely forecast to continue in a post-COVID world. But it's particularly biting young people so much so that average incomes actually went backwards for young people over the past decade. So again, you know, if you, if you talk to a, a person under 35 in 2018, on average they would have had a lower income than younger people did 10 years before. Um, so that assumption of generation on generation progress can no longer uh, be relied on. The Productivity Commission's done a really interesting study of what actually happened. Their conclusion was that the labour market just never really recovered after the GFC, there were fewer um, good jobs, if you like, at the sort of at the top of the ladder. Don't really particularly like that term, but it, what it meant was that qualified young people couldn't necessarily get a job that matched their qualification level. They were therefore going for jobs that they were overqualified for, that was pushing others further down the ladder. And then right at the bottom, you had a massive problem with underemployment, and we see that that's been on the rise for young people. All of that is subduing wage growth. And that's why we see young people go backwards. Um, and that is why I just want to stress how important it is that we try and stop this happening after COVID. So you might have heard about scarring effects of long-term unemployment. It's particularly acute for young people. Um, this is some treasury analysis that shows if a young person enters the job market in a period where unemployment is high, that's going to impact their wages, not just you know, one or two years down the track, but five years and even a decade later. So the most important thing we can do now is actually get behind um, action by the RBA and by the government to try and create economic activity and jobs. The final point I, I would like to make about intergenerational inequality is more of a slow burn one. And again, you know, we've, we've spent a long time now talking about the ageing of a population. This is the chart that really drives it home for me. Um, so we are seeing a significant decline over time in the ratio of people that I'll loosely call of working age, the 15 to 64 year old age group, compared for each person over 65. And by 2055, we're down to three and a bit working age people for every person over 65. 
why does it matter? Um, it matters from a kind of a macro budgetary sense. Older households tend to be net drawers on the budget. Younger households tend to be net contributors. So we've talked about this idea of a generational bargain. So each generation supports the one that went before them in their retirement in the hope that the next generation will do the same for them. Uh, of course, it becomes much harder to withstand that generational bargain in a world where you've got fewer people contributing for each person in that the age that tends to be drawing. And we have supercharged that challenge for young Australians by massively increasing the net transfers that are going to older households at the same time as there's, there's fewer young Australians for everyone in that group. Uh, what's driven that? Partly health and pension spending, and I don't think anyone begrudges that, but it's also been a massive decline in the um, taxation of incomes for older Australians, particularly well-off older Australians. So we now have far fewer older Australians paying any tax than we did 20 years ago, despite the fact that incomes and wealth are much higher, um, and the tax rates they pay are much lower. In fact, I would go as far to argue that we now almost have a two-tier system where your age matters as much for the tax you pay as your income. So if we took um, an older household and a younger household, both on $100,000, on average that older household would pay half as much tax as the younger household, despite being on the same income. Um, and that is contributing to, uh, to those longer term fiscal sustainability questions and intergenerational issues. Uh, I'm gonna pivot now to regional inequality. Uh, this is obviously a huge issue uh, and one that I can't do justice in a short time, but I wanna pick out a couple of key points because it's gonna come back when I start talking about populism and political harmony again. Um, if we look at um, high levels of disadvantage measured by um, significant unemployment rates, it's very difficult to say there's a kind of clear city regional pattern. What we see is pockets of strong disadvantage in both some city suburbs and in regional areas. Um, so if we look at Cape York, for example, um, you know, and I should say this is all pre-COVID, COVID obviously does shift the data around a bit. Um, Cape York pre-COVID unemployment rate, sometimes in excess of 30%, um, you know, very deep structural issues with the labour market there. Uh, but we can also look at um, suburbs in Melbourne there. You can see the, the blow up of the Melbourne map. Um, there's some suburbs um, in the sort of outer west and, and a few suburbs in the south where the unemployment rate's regularly sitting above 15%. Um, so we do have these pockets of really significant disadvantage scattered across both regional and city areas. If we look at incomes, and each of those orange dots in the chart is an Australian postcode um, by income that you submit to the tax office each year, um, we see that incomes tend to be higher on average than in the city, and the further you get from the middle of the city, incomes come down a bit, and then you get a bit of a bounce back up in, in remote areas, which tends to be mining jobs. Um, on the other hand, if we look at changes in incomes over time, uh, it's, they've grown relatively consistently across cities and regions. If anything, outer suburbs have done a little bit worse, um, remote areas have done a bit better. So the sense that regions are falling behind isn't really about incomes per person, uh, but where we do see it strongly is in terms of population growth. Uh, again, obviously a pre-COVID world when we're talking about a growing population. Um, cities, particularly Melbourne, has grown very fast over the past decade, um, partly because of internal migration, but really because it's been a very popular um, destination for migrants to settle. 
We see some population growth in the big regional centres like your Ballarats or your Shepparton's. But then as you get outside those big towns, you see population either stagnant or in decline. And I think that's really contributed to this sense of a two-speed economy, cities much more dynamic um, and, and regions falling behind. And I, I want to come back to some of the political consequences of that a bit later. Um, so why should we care about inequality? Um, and a lot of people say we should care in and of itself, um, that it's not great to live in a society where you have a lot of inequality in income and wealth. But I think there's a lot of very specific negatives as well that I want to point to. Um, the first is poverty. Uh, and a more unequal society, you're more likely to have people that are really struggling at the bottom. And this is still a very big issue in Australia. Uh, there are obviously a lot of different ways to measure poverty. Um, this measure is really about picking the median income. Um, so where is the middle Australian? And then less than 50% of that income, we say, is living in poverty. That gives us about 3 million in poverty. Again, this is pre-COVID. Uh, poverty's actually declined a little bit with government payments, but we expect to see it on the rise again. But really importantly as well, there are, there are certain characteristics that we can see make it much more likely that certain households will live in poverty. The number one is having their primary carer unemployed. You are 66% of households in that bucket live in poverty in Australia. Single parent households also much more likely to live in poverty. Um, anyone receiving any government payment more likely to live in poverty. Um, so, you know, that tells us something a little bit about the causes of poverty there, uh, and it also suggests we can do something about it. And, you know, the rate of, of the old new start um, is obviously going to be a really important part of the number of people that fall into that bucket. The other thing, you know, to me that's, you know, really a powerful demonstration of poverty um, is the survey that Food Bank does each year. Um, this was the 2019 survey. One, one in five Australians experienced food insecurity over the course of that year. That means one in five ran out of food and couldn't afford to buy more. Um, and you know, that to me is, um, really brings home just how significant the challenge of poverty is. And the fact that that's happening in a well-off country like Australia, I think is, is pretty shocking. A related issue uh, is, is more around the longer term consequences and, and what economists call social mobility. Um, so this Great Gatsby curve um, was, was a pretty um, big result in economics at the time. Uh, what it found is that countries that are more unequal at a point in time are also less likely to have social mobility. Um, so what that means is that your outcomes in life are going to be more determined by how your parents did um, than perhaps your individual talent or how hard you work. So you get a stickiness in the um, incomes across generations. Uh, Australia, it was actually a bit of a good news story, even though we were towards the upper end where it came to point-in-time inequality. We actually have been found by a number of studies to have reasonably high social mobility still. Um, so we, you know, kids can get a shot, kind of regardless of where their parents are from. Uh, but there is you know, one aspect that really stands out in the Australian data as a concern. Um, this is some fantastic work done by an economist called Deborah Cobb-Clark. She tracks people that are on social welfare over time and then their children. Um, and what she finds is you're much more likely to end up um, receiving some form of government welfare if your parents did. Um, so that again comes to this question of are we entrenching disadvantage? Um, and I think that really goes to 
you know, how do we make sure that people that are on this support are receiving enough um, so that you don't end up in a cycle of disadvantage. The other reason you might care about inequality is actually at the other end of the spectrum, um, that those that are well off, it becomes self-reinforcing. Um, so wealth is begetting wealth. One way that can happen is through inheritance. And particularly in countries where they have very large inheritances, um, you can end up with a very stagnant society. Um, again, where who your parents are matters more than how hard you work. Um, that hasn't been so much the case in Australia, but we certainly see that um, higher inheritances tend to go to those that are already well off. We also know that inheritances increasingly come later in life. Um, the average age to receive an inheritance is somewhere between 55 and 65, um, when people perhaps have already set themselves up. This is probably going to become a bigger issue over the next few decades. Uh, we know that there's a lot of wealth concentrated in the hands of older generations. Uh, we know that a lot of people don't draw down on that wealth in retirement, so it will get passed on. So I think we can expect to see a rise in wealth inequality in this country over the next 30 years. Uh, the other thing we might be concerned about is if money allowed people to influence the political process in a way that allowed them to perpetuate their advantage. Really interesting paper done by some economists back in 2009 looking at the, um, where people on the BRW rich list actually made their money. It wasn't so much in um, you know, high tech areas or product innovation. Um, the vast bulk of the successful Australians on that list were making their money in property and natural resources. And as the authors of that paper pointed out, they are often um, industries where um, political influence or political decisions can determine who makes a lot of money. So the concern they raised was, you know, is it political connections and money that are driving results um, as opposed to the sort of things that we want to be driving people's wealth? Uh, that certainly concords with some of our work at Grattan. Um, we've looked at political donations and which industries are making them. We find, again, it's mining, property construction, gambling, that are giving much more than we would expect given their relative economic contribution. Um, so it suggests that those industries that have a lot to gain or lose from government decisions are making the decision to contribute to political parties, perhaps in the hope of gaining access and influence. Um, certainly our study is difficult to track this in Australia because we don't collect good data and we don't have much transparency. Uh, Queensland, to their credit, um, has better transparency than most, so we can at least see who um, front benches are meeting with. There we found that 50% of major donors got a meeting with the Premier, the Deputy Premier or the Treasurer in a one-year period. Uh, those are extremely hard meetings to get, I can assure you, and it's certainly not something that um, an average uh, constituent can expect. So over time, you worry that it's that contact um, being integrated with the political decision makers that allows people to continue to entrench their position. Um, finally, the, you might also worry about inequality because it leads to political instability. And we've heard a lot about this in the past decade. Um, with people talking about the rise of, of populism, and we certainly see right across the developed world the vote share of major centre-right and centre-left parties in decline. Um, political scientists have studied this. It doesn't look like it's about inequality per se, um, and in fact doesn't correlate well, for example, your likelihood of voting for a populist cause or leader um, with your absolute level of income. But there does seem to be quite a strong relationship with location. Um, so if we look at the Brexit vote, 
Some people described it as kind of London versus the rest of the country. It's actually the cities versus the rest of the country. So yes, London quite strongly voted to remain, but so did Oxford, um, so did Manchester, so did Liverpool, um, so, did, so did Cardiff in Wales. In fact, it was the, the areas outside those major cities that um, brought on the Leave vote. Similarly, Donald Trump in the United States, uh, we know that the big cities in California and New York um, tend to vote uh, Democrat and they did increasingly so in these elections. But we see the same things um, you know, at a micro level within some of the really important states. Um, so if you zoom into Iowa or Michigan or Ohio, what you see is the cities are these little islands of, of blue, little islands of Democrat vote. And it's really, again, those areas outside the regions that put Trump over the line. Australia, the picture is less stark, but we do, we have seen a very significant rise in the minor party vote over the past decade. And that's actually been particularly driven in the region. So everyone's more likely to vote for minor parties now than they were 10 years ago. But that gap between city and regional votes have increased. And if you break it down by minor party, um, it's really one nation that's been a significant driver of that kind of regional effect. So we are seeing um, perhaps a rise of populism in the regions in Australia too. What's going on? Um, we sort of dug down into the data, and again, this is consistent with what people are finding in other countries. It doesn't seem to be about economics per se. It's a bit subtle. It's more about the way in which the country and culture is changing that people are responding to. So people in the regions in Australia are more likely to to agree that traditional values should be upheld, but also more likely to think that the world's changing too fast, more likely to be concerned about immigration numbers, even though we know there's far less immigrants that go to regional areas compared to the cities. Uh, and those things are particularly pronounced amongst One Nation voters. So what can governments do about inequality? Uh, and as I said at the start, I think the positive here is that um, there are a lot of policy solutions that we know that work, um, particularly on uh, income inequality. So what you want to do partly depends on what you're worried about. Um, are you worried about um, incomes at the bottom and entrenched poverty? Are you worried about the hollowing out of the middle class, which has been less an issue in Australia than in places like the US? Or are you worried about the top and the growing power of the elite? And there are different policies depending on whether you're interested in opportunity, in outcomes, or in actually the long game, you know, changing the structure in order to prevent these things being a problem. Uh, if we're worried about the bottom and entrenched poverty, poverty and I think that is um, a particular concern here, we're looking at things like the minimum wage, whether it's sufficient. We're looking at actually enforcing labour laws to make sure that people are getting paid what they should be. And really importantly, during COVID, we're looking at full employment macro policy. We're actually looking to the government to create stimulus and create jobs to try and um, create opportunities for that group. In terms of outcomes, we want a decent social safety net so that people aren't falling through the gaps. Uh, so we come back to the rate of job seeker being really important. Uh, and we're all extremely concerned as to what's going to happen to that payment post-March. In the long game, we're talking about the enablers. We're talking about health and education. Uh, it's very hard for people um, to have that social mobility if they're not in good health and they're not getting decent standard of education. So those things come more into play. In contrast, if we're worried about the growing power of the elite, looking at things like limits on political influence, 
We are terrible at this in Australia. Um, our Commonwealth regime is one of the weakest in the world and is far weaker than almost any Australian state. Um, so, you know, it's pretty clear some of the things we could do there which would reduce the influence of money and, and connections in politics. In terms of outcomes, you might look at things like wealth taxes, uh, very much a conversation that's being had in the US, not so much here to date. And in terms of the long game inheritance taxes, uh, absolutely politically toxic in this country. So something that, uh, you know, I don't expect would be on the table, but nonetheless, I think could be part of that conversation. In terms of intergenerational inequality, again, number one thing we need to do is create stimulus and, and create jobs for young people. Uh, we need to avoid this scarring effect of the coronavirus recession. Uh, in the longer term, I think housing is part of this conversation. Love to see um, relaxation of laws to try and create more housing supply, particularly in the inner and middle ring suburbs where people want to live close to jobs. Uh, on the demand side, looking at things like investor tax breaks and could have those debates about negative gearing and the capital gains tax again. Um, and on the longer term fiscal position, um, some of those tax breaks for older Australians, I would argue, should be unwound in order to reduce those future pressures coming down the line on young people. The regional inequality story is the hardest, I think. Um, so governments for a very long time, in fact more than 100 years, have been trying to move people and economic activity to the regions. It is very hard for government to push against those economic forces. You can't push economic water uphill, as some people say. Um, so, you know, where the jobs and opportunities are there in the cities, people will move to them and you can spend a lot of money trying to make it otherwise. Uh, I think there is a really interesting question of what COVID changes. Uh, and I think we, you know, I am a believer that we will see some permanent shifts to the way in which at least a group of people um, that office workers work towards more flexible work, some days in the office, some days at home, which do open up regional areas as a potential place to live, although it's still mainly going to be advantaging those that are within commuting distance. Uh, the other thing we can do, of course, is to make sure basic service needs are met in the regions. Um, you know, you want to make sure that people have the health services and the education services they need. Again, I think there's some pretty interesting gains coming out of COVID here, things like telehealth that we've been talking about the need for for a decade. Finally, we have it in place and we've got to make sure that um, the uh, funding and other things are put in place to keep it there. Uh, but that does, you know, open up more opportunities, I think, for the regions. And for politicians, I think... Uh, the actual need is something more subtle, which is about how we communicate what it is to be Australian. Um, so rather than dividing on those kind of cultural issues, you know, the inner city latte sippers um, versus the kind of disenfranchised farmers, um, emphasising common values. And we actually saw that during COVID, you know, that we're all in this together. I think it was a pretty uplifting message for the electorate. We actually saw trust in government go right up. Um, and, you know, I'd hope that we could see more of that going forward rather than playing on these differences. Um, so thank you very much. I am going to end it there. And I really look forward to, to your questions and the discussion. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.